You're listening to Kitchen Table Finance. Join Dave Shotwell and Nick Nauta as they cut through the complexity of financial planning and serve bites of investment advice that are both personal and practical. Next question is, can you set up a retirement fund for a child? If so, how? Yes. Yes, you can. If the if if it's a child under under age eighteen, then an adult must serve as a custodian on that account. But you can open, say, a Roth IRA or a, what's called a Uniform Gift to Minors Act account for um, your child. Or you, you need to check with the custodian. I'm not sure all custodians will do it. I do know Fidelity will do it. I'm ninety percent certain Schwab will do it. You may know more. For a, a minor uh, retirement account, yeah, you know, it, you'd have to have a adult signer on it, and then when the child turns eighteen, the big thing is income. You have to have income, and and by income, I mean income that you're reporting to the government, right? So if Johnny's out mowing lawns and you're not reporting that to the government, well, then you can't have a Roth IRA. So you probably want to report that to the government and then you can fund the, a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA. But most people do Roth IRA because when you're when Johnny's 13 and mowing lawns, he's not paying federal taxes anyway. So there's no point in getting a federal tax uh, deferral. Um, so usually we talk about the Roth IRA in this scenario. But in that case, let's say, you know, Johnny makes $1,500 one summer and he wants to put all that into his Roth IRA. He can do that, but he does have to report that income to the government. And then he would have to pay self-employment tax on some of that $1,500, which is the, the payroll taxes, if you will, that everybody has to pay on income. He doesn't have federal income tax. He won't have state income tax, but the payroll taxes, the self-employment tax will apply. So there's a little bit of a cost to reporting that income, but then... If it's $1,500, you can contribute up to $1,500. And it doesn't necessarily have to be Johnny that contributes all that. You could gift him the $1,500 to contribute it. We do see parents do that from time to time as a way to get started. Also, too, keep in mind, if that income is already W-2 income, you know, if they're bagging groceries at the grocery store or busing tables somewhere, they're going to get a uh, W-2 anyway. That, that's already all reported to the government. The payroll taxes and everything are already taken care of. You don't have to worry about it. The, those, those caveats we're talking about really are it's like a cash on site kind of thing. Um, if they're already already on someone's payroll in a more technical sense, then, uh, then you don't have to worry about that. One, one thing you do have to be careful about if you, you know, you, you can't necessarily pay your kids to do household chores and report that as income. There are some issues behind some of that stuff. So just be careful with, you know, how that all works and looks. But yes, there are options, especially, you know, the easiest option is if they're bagging groceries or something like that, and they're getting a W-2, you can use that income for sure. And and as I understand, there's lots of jobs for kids out there. I think that's the, I heard something on the Wall Street Journal, it's the fastest growing labor section is teenage workers. So it's kind of swinging back, I think, you know, for a few years, it was hard, yeah. hard for kids to find jobs. At least that's what my kids told me. <laughs> <laughs> they tried, I know they did. But uh, yeah, <laughs> But uh, yeah, that's uh, 
and I guess, you know, we should always put the acid disclaimer with all these things when you're, you know, if your kid's got a job and you're trying to figure out the ins and outs of this stuff, talk to your tax advisor. They'll tell you, they'll tell you the best way to make sure that, um, you've documented everything right. And, uh, you know, um, when my kids had, had W2s when they were in grade school and, and high school, I just gave them my CPA along with my own stuff just to let me know what we need to do. Definitely check with a tax advisor. Um, you know, you don't want to mess that up, so to speak. But definitely, you know, a good option if you want to teach a kid how to save for retirement and how important that might be for them. So our next question, Dave, is can you pull money out of a SEP and invest in real estate? This is an interesting question. First of all, if by pulling money out of a SEP to invest in real estate means like taking the money out of the account and buying real estate, you can absolutely do that, but it's going to be taxed as income when you pull it out and likely, depending on your age, be penalized as well on top of the taxes. So if you're pulling, you know, $200,000 out of a SEP IRA to buy a piece of property, you're going to pay, you know, something on the order. If you're under 59 and a half, you might be paying 40% or so tax on that money to take that money out. And depending on the investment value of the property you're buying, that's a pretty steep hill to try to make up, right? So so short answer to the easy part of the question is yes, you can. No, you probably shouldn't. Um, so then the other part of the question, the more complicated part of the question, and I'm not sure if this is what they were getting at or not, but you can there are ways to buy property within an IRA plan. Okay. I'm not an expert on this. I, I looked into it a few years ago for a few different clients. I'm just going to give kind of a high level rundown of it. But essentially, it involves creating your own company that has a retirement plan and roll your SEP IRA into that company's retirement plan. That then that company is owned by the 401k and you can use the money then in the company's retirement plan. I'm saying 401k because I think it has to be a 401k. I'm not sure on that. Might not, might not matter. But then the um, company's assets inside that 401k can be used to then buy a piece of property or a business. I, I'm going to tell you that from memory, it can't be just vacant land or your second house. It has to be um, a income producing business. So rental properties are likely okay. But again, you know, just buying a piece of vacant land and selling it, I don't think you can do that. Again, I'm not an expert on it. It's been a while since I looked at it. Things I can tell you, there's a lot of legal work involved to do it right. So essentially, you're getting around paying that big chunk of taxes for pulling your money out. And you're potentially sheltering the growth of that property and the income it produces inside a retirement account, which is good. It saves you a lot of taxes. The downsides of it are to do that right, to follow all the IRS rules, is very expensive. And the companies that do this are essentially legal entity, you know, law firms and consultants 
they create all this paperwork for you to do this, and they're very expensive. So this isn't a way to go buy a um, you know four uh, ten thousand dollar you know condemned piece of property. This is a way to buy something that's going to be valuable enough to be worth all this expense and headache. The other thing is because it has to be a business, somebody's got to run that business, and that's going to be you, most likely. So you know, and and where I saw people run into trouble with this, this was back before the financial crisis, and I knew a couple of people who had done it. Is liquidity. You know, this wasn't the retirement that they wanted it to be. Their businesses didn't do very well because we were going into the financial crisis at the time, and they wanted out, and they were stuck. So, you know, I'm not a big proponent of it. I'm not saying it can't be. It's one of those situations where investment-wise and financial-wise and tax-wise, it may look really good and it may be right for the right people. But just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. Yeah, I feel like this this one gets kind of a, a, the wrap of, you know, it's kind of like following some influencer on Instagram or something where, you know, they're in a whole different level ball game than most people are, but they make it seem like it's super easy and anybody can do it. And, you know, yes, you probably could do it, but I think it's a lot more complex and complicated and expensive if you're doing it on a level that's not, you know, where most people where you're hearing about it are doing it at, so to speak. Possible, but Something you definitely want to be careful around and making sure you're A, doing it the right way and B, making sure that this is, you know, what you want to do and a a part of your overall plan that makes sense. Not necessarily you're going to just do it for one property and see how it goes kind of thing. All right. So next question, Dave, is why don't financial planners speak of gold or silver as an investment for a balanced portfolio? So first of all, that's not like a universal truth. I, I've seen plenty of financial planners, people that I think do a good job and, and have respect for that do include precious metals in their investment portfolios. Um, I've seen good arguments for using them and good arguments for not using them. I The portfolios we use and the portfolio construction folks at East Bay that we work with don't generally like to include them. And it's not, it's not that they're always bad. It's, it's when we, when we're looking at what goes in a portfolio, we need to make sure it provides diversification and potential return, right? That means it either, either it needs. So if, uh, without getting too far in the weeds on asset allocation, you know, if you start with a hundred percent stock portfolio, anything you add to that needs to provide either a superior return or reduce the risk. That means like, so So, if you just take stocks and bonds and we'll put an asterisk on that because the last three months haven't played out this way, but long-term they will. You know, stocks go up when certain things happen in the economy and bonds generally don't do as well. And then vice versa, when, you know, bonds are doing well, stocks aren't doing well. So we don't expect bonds are going to outperform stocks, but they give us some ballast in the ship, right? And, you know, gold can do that at certain times, but it's a little less predictable. And, you know, some of the times when, you get, well, gold's just not as reliable in that, in that sense. 
And, you know, there's an old, there's an old adage, you know, gold is a great way to get all of the volatility of the stock market with all the long-term return of a certificate of deposit. Okay. So, you know, the reason we put up with the volatility in the stock market is because the long-term average on the stock market is about 10%. Gold, the long-term average is three and a half or 4%. I forget the exact number and I'm not pulling out charts to figure it out, but it's approximately the same as the long-term return on a certificate of deposit with all of the volatility. If you look at a chart of gold, it zigs and zags every bit as much as the stock market does. And so that's not a good risk-reward trade-off from my point of view. Other metals, I actually think are, are better investments than gold anyway. Okay. Gold, gold only has value because it's pretty. There's not any, there's, there's not any, um, industrial use for gold, really. Silver there is, copper there is, tungsten, you know, plutonium, you know, all these other, um, precious metals get used in electronics, get used in construction. You know, there's, there's value to them. Gold, there, there really isn't any. They, they tend to be seen as a hedge against inflation, which is on everyone's mind right now, but they're not a perfect hedge against inflation. And the time to have bought them would have been when inflation was low, you know, and, and going into an inflationary scenario, they take off. When inflation is real, the ship has already sailed. So not a big fan of them now. There are better tools now than there used to be. Um, when you and I started in the business, you know, if you wanted to buy gold, you had to go to a precious coin dealer and buy physical gold, right? Right. And, and now there are exchange traded funds that track the value. Oh, the other way you could do it was to buy mining companies. You know, you could buy gold mining companies because they tended to track, but not perfectly, the value of gold or silver. The uh, tools now are better. You can buy exchange traded funds that will track the price of gold or silver or other precious metals. So it's easier to take them in and out of a portfolio. The other thing, though, is a lot of times when people talk about, hey, I want to buy gold, when they see the ads on MSNBC about buying gold, they're not talking about, you know, buying gold in your IRA that you can, you know, move in when you get the price low and move out. They're talking about having, like, physical gold because they think the world's in. And, you know, I just kind of, you know, if, if you really think that things are going to spiral to that point, it's not like you're, there, there won't be any economy for you to like walk into, you won't be able to walk into the grocery store with your uh, solid gold um, Swedish kroner coins and, and walk out with a little soup, you know? Right. And, and if you really think, if you really think that the world's ending, it's not going to matter what you, what, what. Yeah. So. Probably be, probably be better off buying uh, farming equipment right. so you can uh, <laughs> produce some stuff off your land. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, freeze-dried food, uh, Um, the last thing I'll say on that is that there's, you're going to see, especially in times like when, whenever the stock market's bad, every other ad on financial television is going to be someone telling you how great gold is. And you need to remember this is, this gets lost somehow in the conversation, but every one of them has a pile of gold that they want to sell to you. And if they think the price of gold is going to the moon the way they describe it, why would they be selling it to you now? <laughs> right. <laughs> they wait for six months, 12 months, then yeah. you? So just keep in mind, that's true just about anything. But, uh, you know, they're always trying to sell you what they have. And uh, 
they're not doing it because they think this is a great time to buy gold. They're doing it because they think it's a great opportunity. Very true. Very true. All right. Next question. How often should you change your investments or not? So we're pretty firm believers that if you, you change your investments when your circumstances change, not when the markets change. When the motor, right? You know, if you're in a transition phase from being able to save to being ready to trying to get ready to retirement, that's a trigger to change your portfolio. If you have uh, a windfall that changes your circumstances, you can change your retirement. If you have uh, unexpected expenses that may be on the horizon, you know, going the other way, that can cause you to change your 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 investments, but not you know based on what Dave's gut feeling about you know, the price of gold, the price of stocks, the price of bonds. Build a good portfolio in the first place and you shouldn't have to change it. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the best investment advice that we've ever given is don't do anything, right? (laughs) It's probably the most common. It's also the most counterintuitive a lot of times when you're feeling the pain and the market's going down, you know, not doing anything is probably the best advice, but it's also probably feels the worst. So there's a study (laughs) that's out there that Fidelity did where they, you know, we live in the area of big data now where they can analyze things and figure things out on a large scale. And so Fidelity decided they were going to take all of their investment accounts and look at the top performers and then reach out to those people about like what their strategy was. And what they found out was that their top performing accounts, I can't make this up, their top performing accounts, a large percentage of them were top performing accounts because people either A, forgot about them, or the account holder was actually dead. So they were people that weren't changing, they had bought something and forgotten about it or forgot or died with it and didn't ever make any changes. And Vanguard's done a study that I think is similar, kind of going the other way, where they've looked at how often people log into their investment accounts and how those accounts tend to perform, and they are inversely correlated. People that look at their investment accounts often, these are people that you know are doing their own thing. They, they are more likely to make changes that are detrimental to their outcomes. So, you know, those, yeah, I think that says what you need to know about changing your portfolio. Make a good plan and stick with it. Have a discipline. Or lose lose your account password to log in and then go back in twenty yeah. years. Yeah. Well, the last <laughs> thing, the last thing I'll say on that too is, if you are making changes, there are strategies, there are arguments. Um, I've been reading a, a pretty good book that talks about about this topic, which will probably end up being a book review here in a couple of weeks. But whatever you do, make rules for yourself about the changes you're going to make, and stick to those rules. You know, if you're going to follow an investment strategy that calls for some changes, don't make those rules up on the fly, especially in the heat of a you know a lousy market or an overheated market. Make those make those rules of how you're going to make those changes when you're not in an emotional state, and 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 stick to them. Write them down and stick to them. So our next question is, what is a good retirement or savings investment option for someone living paycheck to paycheck? So the first thing is we've got to get them to stop living paycheck to paycheck, right? Yeah. Yeah. You can't really save if you're living paycheck to paycheck. 
And then from there, it's about, you know, making sure you cover your bases and saving what you can. Yeah, I think more important than uh, retirement savings is getting yourself on a good good handle on your cash flow, your budget, making sure that you are working your way out of living paycheck to paycheck, whether that's paying off debt, whether that's reducing some expenses to free up some stuff to give yourself a little bit of leeway and build the all-important emergency contingency fund. Um, so that you have options. And, and I think that's the best way to... The thing about saving for retirement and investing is it only works if you have the time to put in it. So what happens is if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you're trying to put money into a retirement account, and then in six months, you got to turn around and pull it back out, you're actually doing yourself more harm than the good of actually saving. So, so build that base first and then go back and... and you know, we, we probably should have bumped this question up to the top because it kind of goes with a couple other things. But, you know, start own, do what you can, and build as you go. And don't uh, not save because you feel like you can't save enough. All right. Our last and final question, Dave. Is a Roth or traditional IRA a better investment for retirement? When you're, when you're in retirement, Roth is great, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> nobody's going to regret having a Roth in retirement because you don't have to pay taxes when those monies come out. In terms of making the decision while you're saving, though, you need to look at your tax bracket and your current income and make an educated guess because that's all it will be is an educated guess about whether your taxes will be higher when you're in retirement taking those funds out or higher now. So... You know, if you're in a high income situation now, there's a pretty good argument for making, you know, traditional IRA or pre-tax 401k contributions now and then paying those taxes in retirement. But if you're not, if you're in a lower tax bracket now, you may want to go ahead and do Roth. Yeah, it's, it's kind of one of those things that like Social Security, if you can tell us exactly what taxes are going to be when you retire and what situation you're going to fall into, well, uh, we have the exact correct answer for you. The reality is that we don't know that. And also, it, you're probably if you're talking a 30-year retirement, things are going to change in retirement. So having some Roth and some pre-tax funds is going to be really helpful because you're going to have options. And that's super important when you get to that point. So to, to give a practical answer rather than just a bunch of, oh, it depends. I would say, you know, if you unless you feel like you're in super high tax bracket now, go ahead and do a Roth as long as you can afford to pay the taxes now. If it becomes a budgeting issue, you know, um, then, then maybe, um, then maybe, you know, doing the IRA, the traditional contributions to reduce your current tax burden and make it a little bit easier to save is a good idea. I also like the idea of, of splitting things too, because just like like diversified investments, having your tax situation diversified in retirement is useful too. We can we can then kind of be more strategic about your taxes during retirement, where you take money from. Yeah, and another thing to consider is you know what if, is the goal of this just for retirement? Do you have kids that are young that are going to go to college someday? There's some different reasons to have a Roth IRA pulling out for college, things of that nature that might make a little bit more sense in terms of 
how and when you use that money. So some other things to consider when you're thinking about which one should I do. Well, Dave, that is it for today. We survived our first uh, Ask Me Anything. Uh, So (laughs) thank you for everybody that wrote a question. We would love to do more of these. So if you're listening out there and you have a question for Dave or I, would love to get those. You can email those to info at srbadvisors.com. Dave, as always, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, that was fun. Thank you, Nick. Gather around and follow the Kitchen Table Finance Podcast to learn about money and simple ways you can invest right now. You can find more practical advice at srbadvisors.com and contact the team for personal planning by emailing info at srbadvisors.com.